0: you're listening to real presence live now back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area heard right here
1: on the rpr network good morning this is father richard Kuntz, along with my new co-host cindy jennings from the Diocese of Duluth, we're in the Saint James Campus of Stella Academy, and uh, we are here live on Real Presence Live, Duluth Edition. Cindy, yes. Welcome to the show as the new co-host.
2: Thank you. I've moved seats. I feel very important you, now. You're, you're, you
1: have moved seats. Now you're right across <laughs> from me instead alongside me because you've been you've been on the air a few times.
2: Mm, yeah, I have actually. Yeah. But next time I'll bring a mint for you because I'm kind of like right there. You're gonna bring a mint. Mint. A mint. Oh. Well, we're, Just kidding. we're we're far enough away. Yeah, we're social distancing here.
1: We are, and so um, uh, now I think Eli, are you there? Oh, okay. I Hi. thought Eli was going to be there. <laughs> I guess apparently Eli's is not going <laughs> to sh- talk to us about the show. So um, yeah, we've got a a fun show. Now tell me, Cindy, what were you um? What are you most nervous about as being a host? You know, we got like two point three potential million listeners right now.
2: Oh uh, well, then nothing. I am quite cool, calm, and collective.
1: We probably don't have two point three million listeners actually, but we have that potential. We probably only have like a million listeners right now. How does that make you feel?
2: You know what? I feel completely re- relaxed. I guess Do you I'm really? good. Yeah, why is that's your hand, a lot. Why is
1: your hand shaking? Why is your coffee shaking right now, or your tea? <laughs> I don't know. Oh. Why are
2: you trying to put me on the spot? It's amazing to be able to talk to everybody in the world. How about that? Yeah,
1: well, it's okay. Almost. Yeah, about the faith and about important aspects of things that are going on in the church. I know that um, uh, our first guest is going to be here shortly, uh, not in person, but on the phone, and uh, I'm excited about that. That's going to be George Weigel, and I think a lot of people know who George Weigel is. He's the author of uh, Witness to Hope, which is the uh, biography, not an official biography, but like the primary biography of John Paul II. And... And he actually has written many, many books, but uh, he's written actually three books based on The Witness to Hope. um, uh, The Beginning and the End, I think, was the second one. And then I can't remember the last one. He was writing writing about writing the book. So he's got a lot of interaction with John Paul II, which is uh, really cool because he's like my favorite guy, John Paul II. Do you remember him, John Paul? How old (laughs) old are you? No, you don't have to say.
2: (laughs) I was born in 77. So yes, I do remember.
1: You're the same age as my little baby
2: sister. I am. I'm t- I'm talking like oh, she's your baby favorite. Um, if she's listening, she is. Oh, but I think you you do because we get along pretty well. Who? And So you're where you're at in line, and I'm the youngest. Yeah. And that's your youngest sister. Right. That's why we get along so well.
1: Do we get along? Well, sometimes. Well,
2: okay. All right. Well, you know, well, I can give it back. You can give it. You know,
1: that kind of stuff. What? Well, what month in October were you? And uh, what month in October? What month in '77 were you born?
2: April 1st.
1: April 1st. So you're just a little bit younger than my baby
2: sister. She was born.
1: Fe- February. Oh, well, that's right. April first. I knew that. Yes, you are April Fool's baby. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um. Anyhow, are you excited about uh, this opening up? with this whole COVID thing coming to to pass? Oh
2: my gosh! I just want to go to mass. I think we should yeah. just do it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, you just you you. I just saw you whisper. We just had mass in my office for those of you who didn't watch. Uh, if you weren't streamlining it, we were actually doing it in my office because we we're doing reconstruction area. Or a, um, a renovation in the church sanctuary, and uh, I heard you say to Nicole Gerard, who is helping you in regards to the, the mass, uh, that um, you haven't been to the, you haven't had the Eucharist for so long.
2: No, isn't that?
1: How, so how, when was the last time you had the Eucharist before the shutdown? It had to be right?
2: that week before. I thought we'd probably not be at Mass actually that week, and we were there. And we had Donut Sunday afterwards. Remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I
1: do remember that.
2: <laughs> like Donut Sunday during this? Uh, okay. But
1: we, we hadn't had the full break uh, shutdown Wasn't, at that point. No, it was like
2: happening that Wednesday. We were on so the verge Yeah, of it. it was. You know the, it was. I don't know. It just really touched me because I. It's weird to think that I haven't had the Eucharist for that long. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. It's you. I, we, mean, I
1: mean, we priests we do it. Every, I mean, I do, do mass every, every single day, okay. you know, and and so uh, you know, most of my masses in the last couple of months have been just by myself, you know, and so we've had the, with the Sunday mass we've had, um, uh, um, you know, Nicole Nicole Gerard who helped out with the mass this morning. She's the, been my voice in the last several weeks uh, to help out with the responses while we've been live streaming. And then school masses. I've done one school mass. will do, do another one tomorrow. Other than those Sunday masses. And the school masses—I've been alone on all my masses. It's just kind of—that's weird. Kind of, isn't it? it is weird, but you know, we priests—we're we're, obviously—we're blessed by nature of our vocation that we can receive the Eucharist, and so this period of time has not been without the sacraments for us, because we're the ones who bring forth the sacrament, and and obviously our bishops want us to continue praying the mass for. You know, for the well-being of our of our people and and of the well-being of the nation, the nation and the country, world as a whole, in regards to this whole COVID thing. But it's very exciting now to see a um, an opening up, and it's so appropriate because it's like spring. You know, life is starting to come, but at the same time, life amidst COVID is starting to open up at the same time.
2: But do you think we'll be back in June 1st? Um, is that the plans?
1: Uh, the plans are a bit murky right now, and I don't want to get too down. Well, let me say this: It's very easy to get political about this right now because you know we have listeners. We have listeners in in different um, states. Obviously, in different states are dealing with this in a different oh, ways. That's right. In the state of Minnesota, our governor is not allowing anybody uh, any uh, religious services of ten people, uh, a limit of ten people, which you know a lot of us find frankly ridiculous. Because you know, um, somebody sent me a photo just the other day of a of, of a sign in front of Menards here in Duluth and it was out like on the window and it said due to the size of our building we cannot accept more than 500 people at a time and so it's like if Menards if the governor thinks that people can go to Menards and you know darn well that they're not social distancing the way that they should why is it that we can't why is it that our first amendment rights to assemble and worship is being in essence trampled on and not allowed by our governor when you can go to Menards or you can go to you know Walmart it's just fine so you know, priests, a lot of us priests are extraordinarily frustrated with it. And just in North Carolina uh, the other day, just, a, just the other day in North Carolina, uh, a federal judge had um, uh, knocked down that governor's same law that our governor is doing. And so I know that there is a lawsuit coming forth in the state of Minnesota to hopefully put our government back on the right track in regards to the uh, um in regards to the uh, right to assemble and worship so anyhow
2: and i uh, hope that we learned a lesson and that we can actually do it differently next time uh hopefully it
1: won't be a next time in our lifetime but anyhow (laughs) we right now have george weigel (laughs) on the air george are you there good morning how are you george hello uh, george thanks very much for uh being on the air with us uh just to start off with can you just tell us a little bit about yourself for the for the two or three uh, people out there that don't know who you are
0: Yes, well, um, I'm George Weigel, I'm Distinguished Senior Fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, and I think I'm on here because I'm the biographer of Pope St. John Paul II.
1: (laughs) George, you find most of your gigs because of that? I find a
0: lot of them because of that, but not exclusively.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, uh, um, uh, you know, I mean, we just had the 100th uh, birthday of John Paul yesterday, and I know you had something live. I was unfortunately not able to tune into that, but why don't you just speak a little bit about um, uh, that aspect of John Paul's impact on the world in light of his 100th birthday, and then we'll get to a couple of other questions after that.
0: I said on the webinar from the John Paul II Shrine uh, last night that I think you're referring to uh, yes. that uh, the more I think about this, over time, the more I think it's important to lift up uh, John Paul II as the great Christian witness of our time, the man who made uh, Catholic Orthodoxy interesting, compelling, fascinating, the man who demonstrated with his own life that Christian discipleship led to a life of great adventure uh... the man who by living really a kind of biblical life uh... demonstrated the power of religious and moral conviction to to move history in a more humane direction um, there's a lot of attention obviously to the impact john paul ii had on on world affairs but all of that needs to be understood as a reflection of his uh... radical conversion to christ uh... and his way of thinking about the priesthood and the episcopate uh... he did what he did as a christian disciple and, and a christian pastor and that's what i think needs to be lifted up right now so that particularly so that the church uh... begins to wrap its head around uh... what he called the new evangelization uh... as its grand strategy for the twenty-first century and the third millennium
1: Yeah. You know to, to me, all, all popes are measured in light of John Paul II. <laughs> That's from my standpoint. You know it used to, it used to be that um, uh, there was a term that the John Paul II generation and some people don't like that gen, you know that terminology about John Paul II. but for me personally, I embrace that and I am like I am like one of those priests that totally and firmly the John Paul II generation. he, in, he impacted every aspect of my life. And I know that there's a lot of people, a lot of guys like that. I'm sure you've seen a lot of people like that, particularly priests about my age. Uh, it's, it's true
0: all over the world, church, and it's not, uh, well, it's particularly true of priests and many bishops it, and, and more than a few men and women religious. It, it's not just true of what we might call religious professionals. Um, uh, I, I think there's a fundamental difference Dividing line in, in the church, or a template, if you will, for, for sorting out this very complicated business of the Catholic Church of 1.3 billion uh, people. Uh, those parts of the world church that have embraced the uh, teaching of John Paul II and Benedict XVI as the authoritative interpretation of the Second Vatican Council and are getting on with living the new evangelization are living and in some cases they're thriving uh... those who rejected that teaching or ignored that teaching or are still trying to make the failed project of what i've been calling for twenty years catholic light uh... work uh, are moribund or dying that's the fundamental you know breakpoint in, in, in the catholic church uh, today And the dying bits are, are, you know, uh, perfectly exemplified by what's going on in German Catholicism today. Uh, The Catholic Church in Germany is in the the middle of a bureaucratically driven uh, national synod whose stated goals, I mean, this is not something I'm making up, this is what they're saying, are essentially to turn the Catholic Church into a form of of Protestantism. Mm Mm-hmm uh so they obviously didn't get the message um over the 26 and a half years uh of John Paul II but then you look at you know you look at the living parts of the church in the united states uh you look at the church in africa which is living a very john paul to new evangelization experience right now and and you see you know the difference between what's living and what's dying and and he really helps define that i think
1: yeah No, I totally agree.
2: Uh, George, you know, we're here, we're reflecting on the month of Mary, and I just, I'm wondering, um, can you tell us about, you know, St. John Paul II's relationship with the Blessed Mother?
0: Uh, I'd be happy to, because I think there's a lot of uh, psychobabble nonsense about this, uh, frankly. Um, uh, Too many people talk about... uh, uh, and these are usually the pope's critics, that his Marian piety was some sort of displaced maternal affection. His mother died before he was nine years old, so he transfers his uh, love for his mother to Our Lady. I, that's all rubbish. Um, he had a very sophisticated, theologically deep, uh Marian Piety. Um, uh it was biblically rooted. You can see that in in, in the luminous mysteries of the rosary, which he gave the church. That was an attempt to anchor the rosary even more firmly in in the New Testament. Um, you can see it in his astonishing Christmas address to the Roman Curia in, in December nineteen eighty seven, when he says that Mary's uh discipleship, Mary's uh, fiat at the Annunciation, be it done unto me according to your word, sets the entire pattern of Christian discipleship for the future. And that all other forms of discipleship in the Church, the Petrine form of discipleship with its responsibilities uh, of authority, uh... the joanine form of discipleship, contemplative prayer, the pauline form of discipleship, the proclamation of the word and evangelization, all of these depend in a fundamental way on the Marian profile of discipleship. So at the beginning of the church uh, is a laywoman without office. Uh, that, that's a dramatic thought, and I think it just takes us beyond um, both... Simple, simplistic Marian piety, but it also takes us beyond a lot of the nonsense that's uh, that comes from various uh, feminist critiques of of Catholic uh, theology and, and practice. I, so yeah, uh, I love yeah. how you
1: said that, George, about how how basically at the start of the church we had a, um, a, a humble woman without office, and you know I mean that kind of it's it's I like how you put that because. The whole thing, so much of the pontificate of John Paul II was really having to engage that feminist movement that you're talking about. I remember 1994 at Pentecost where you know, he wrote about you know, the whole idea of uh, you know, women's ordination. And uh, he, had to, he had to engage in that sort of battle, if you will, for his entire pontificate, or at least up until 1994, I'm sure, and thereafter.
0: Yeah, he was uh, very aware of the cultural signs of the times, and he thought that certain ideologically hardened forms of feminism were really dumbing down the human condition. I mean, he, he once said over the dinner table, you know, it's just a fascinating thing in its own right that God saw fit to create humanity in two forms both completely human, but there's there's men, and then there's women. And uh, they are complementary. They are fruitful in their complementarity, uh, but they're distinct. And to try to erase that distinction, I think he would say, is to do damage to both. Uh, A unisex world is really not a terribly interesting world. Yeah. Uh, and it also leads to the kind of nonsense that we see today with the whole transgender movement.
1: Exactly. Uh,
0: which, is, which is really wickedness. I mean, I think it's time to start calling these things for, for what they are. Uh, this is an attempt to uh, deal with deep, Psychological and psychiatric problems through a technological fix which has shown no empirical evidence whatsoever of, of helping people who are uh, suffering in this way.
1: Exactly. Uh, but, and, and yet culture and culture is making us feel like the average person afraid of challenging it. You know,
0: yeah, well, we, the more, I mean, unless enough people do, that'll continue to uh, be the case, because I think we all know, you know the only way to deal with bullies is to punch them in the nose.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, sometimes uh, we'd like to do that, but we can't, because at least not us priests.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose. Uh, you can you can punch rhetorically. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I want to thank you for listening to Real Presence Live for tuning in. We are talking to George Weigel about Pope John Paul II and uh, St. John Paul II's uh, Marian devotion. I'm Father Rich Kuntz, along with Cindy Jennings, coming to you from the Diocese of Duluth. Uh,
2: so maybe we could just talk about um, some takeaways from the example of St. John Paul II. Can you kind of go into that?
0: Well, Cindy, uh, in, uh, three years ago, I published a book called Lessons in Hope My Unexpected Life with St. John Paul II. At, at, at the end of that uh, book of anecdotes, personal reminiscences, uh, lots of table talk with the Pope, uh, the kinds of informal things that didn't quite fit into the two large volumes of biography, Witness to Hope, and, and the End and the Beginning. At the end of all that, I, uh, I said, okay, well, what does this all mean? Uh, what it all means is uh, a radical faith that uh, in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, uh, we meet the truth about humanity and its ultimate destiny. Um... Then we can live without fear. We can live in hope. That's why his life was a lesson in hope. Uh he was an Easter person. He was an Easter person who knew that you only get to Easter through Good Friday. Uh I think he was he was very struck uh by the story of in in Luke's gospel of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. What you know, what what's going on there? what's going on there is they're walking in the wrong direction they're walking away from jerusalem they're walking away from calvary and the risen lord whom they don't immediately recognize points out to them through the scriptures that they're walking in the wrong direction that the messiah had to suffer but on the far side of his suffering was the revelation of god's power over death itself in the resurrection. So what do they do? They turn back and, and run run back in the right direction. Uh, John Paul II's conviction that if you're walking in the right direction, uh, you can live hope even in the most draconian circumstances, as he did during the Second World War, during the harshest uh, parts of the Communist period in Poland, uh, in his own suffering, the assassination attempt, the Parkinson's disease—you can always live in hope if you embrace the crucified Lord as the risen Lord.
2: Oh, that's that's great! And just based on like what you you're saying that you wrote the book. Are you working on anything new? Is has this quarantine sparked some some good writing from you? I mean, can you tell us or share with us what you're? Well, writing?
0: you're obviously not paying attention. <laughs> Weekly <laughs> column in the Catholic Press, and the occasional oh, things I put yes. in the Catholic World <laughs> Report. Uh, if if folks want to keep up with you know my my uh, meditations on the signs of the times, they can go to the website of my center www.eppc.org, eppc. Uh, org Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, all all of my occasional writing is there and yeah oh, i'm i'm not sitting around twiddling my thumbs <laughs> 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 i'm getting on with the ministry of the word
1: in a
2: different form here. well great
1: one of the uh one of the things that not i mean i had you're obviously in a unique spot in regards to your interaction with Pope John Paul II and, and how often in your unique spot in being his biographer I had a number of occasions to have interaction with him actually 7 times which I counted because I was so excited about it and the very first thing he ever said to me and I was so nervous and so pumped at the same time not knowing what he was going to say but the very first thing he said to me the first time he saw me he pointed at me and he said you're too skinny he had he had an incredible <laughs> sense of humor and I, and I'm wondering I'm wondering what was what was, what do you find the most funny experience you had with John Paul, because a lot of people don't know this about him. His sense yeah. of humor was incredible.
0: Well, the, the and this is It Lessons in Hope. This uh, this is probably my favorite story in, in, in the book. Um, in the fall of 1997, there was an Italian Eucharistic Congress in Bologna uh, that the Pope was going to be helicoptered up to to give the closing address on a Sunday night. And some Bright bulb and the Italian bishops conference had decided that the setup act for Pope John Paul II was going to be Bob Dylan.
1: He was oh, yeah, going to
0: warm yeah. up the crowd. So I decided this is worth watching. Uh, <laughs> so I watched this on TV and Dylan concluded with uh, you know his signature song "Blowing in the Wind." Uh, John Paul II immediately dispenses with the text that had been prepared for the occasion, picks up on Blowing in the Wind, starts talking about the Holy Spirit in the church, preparing it for the Great Jubilee of 2000. <laughs> so I thought, this is, you know, this is great. He's really, he's really still uh, got the uh, game here. And then three days later, I was at lunch uh, with the Pope. We were working on uh, some uh, some questions as I was preparing with this to open. <laughs> Before I had even, he, had, he always said grace before males in Latin in about two nanoseconds. And um, I haven't even gotten into my seat across from him when he's looking at me across the table and says, Who is Bob DeLon? <laughs> 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 yeah, to which I replied, and this is not going to win me any friends in Dylan's native Minnesota, um <laughs> Uh, Holy Fathers think of him as someone whose songs always sound better when someone else sings. Them.
1: I think, well, as a Duluthian, a lot of people think that. And Bob Dylan was born in Duluth. That's so, right. Yeah. yeah.
0: So no, he had a uh, he had a very wry uh, sense of uh, humor, um, indeed.
1: What was um, uh, what was it like? I mean, I, I know you shared many meals with him. What was it like to sit down and have lunch with the Pope? With this pope, I mean Pope John Paul. I mean, it what's, was going through, best, what's going it, yeah. was,
0: it, it was best when his valet uh, Angelo Gugiel, the tall, gray-haired man in the black suit, you would see walking behind him. When Angelo was cooking, lunch was really good. Uh, <laughs> Angelo was a was a really good cook. The Polish sisters, whom I loved to pieces, uh, and still see some of. Them when I'm back, when I'm back in Krakow, but they they were not um, five star cooks. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, the, uh, the 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 thing to do was get get invited to lunch when when Angelo was cooking. It was it was just very straightforward. I mean, there was nothing fancy or pretentious about this. I mean, the notion that the Pope lives in some you know uh, apartment of Renaissance splendor is just pure nonsense. Uh, right. The papal apartment is a very simple uh, middle-class Italian uh, family home. Uh, this cardinal secretary of state's apartment is the—you know—that's the one that you 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 see all the the fancy stuff in. But no, John Paul II lived very simply. He was not terribly interested in food, uh, although he had a fantastic sweet tooth, right? And uh, would eat. Uh, his dessert uh, to the Nth uh, degree um, so it was no it was I mean this sounds bizarre to say that it just became uh, a normal part of my life to be at the Pope's dinner table but it was I mean and you know and I think my wife felt the same way on the occasion she was there uh, people were made to feel at home he wanted to know what people thought he was a uh, he was a gracious host um uh, 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 Monsignor later Archbishop now Cardinal Jivish. uh... his secretary was always good for making uh funny remarks or wry remarks or poking fun at people uh so it was all very uh normal and and natural. This is a man who lived from conversation he he really uh i mean he was a ferocious reader and and re- uh, read intensely but he he also learned an enormous amount. From conversation and and I think it was the conversation, not the carbohydrates that he really cry, craved at the uh, at the uh, table
1: yeah. um just to get back to that Marion theme a little bit. I mean, I love, so my thing that I like to talk the most about is the the things that you're talking about, like the dinner table and your experience with him, because that brings a human side to him, you know, and and that's the part that I, that I particularly love and people should want to know the human side of our Pope, especially the sainted Pope. But I just want to get back a little bit to this Marian theme about this idea of totus tuus. Can you speak to, to, to where that came from and, you know, how he, how he took that on as his, as his motto?
0: If you read his vocational memoir, Gift and Mystery, which he published in ninety six to mark the fiftieth anniversary of his ordination to the priesthood, he talks in there about uh, the year. It was actually the, the fall of nineteen thirty eight when he moved from his hometown of Vadovica to Krakow with his father to begin his university studies, and he says that he was he was dissatisfied with the Marian piety with which he had grown up. He thought it was a bit of a distraction from focusing his prayer on uh, the Lord Jesus. So he was obviously looking for something uh, a bit different. And it was during the war that the the lay mystic Jan Taranowski, who introduced yeah. him to John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, also introduced him to St. Louis de Montfort and gave him uh, Louis de Montfort's book, True Devotion to Our Lady. And he writes, John Paul II writes in Gift and Mystery, that he learned from, from Montfort that all true Marian piety is Christocentric and Trinitarian. Because, uh, and that's embodied in a very uh, biblical way in Mary's last recorded words uh, in the New Testament, do whatever he tells you. Uh, By pointing to her son, who is both son of God and son of Mary, Mary points us to the two central mysteries of Christian faith, the Incarnation and the Trinity. So he learned from Montfort uh, during the Second World War that um, Marian piety is embedded within uh, salvation history in a a very uh, unique uh, way. And that slogan totus tuus was a Montfortian slogan. Mm-hmm. So he picked that up from Louis de Montfort and then adopted it when he became a bishop. Hmm. And and of course uh, you see it uh, uh, on his stemma, his his coat of arms mm-hmm. as well. The M under the the uh, arm of the uh, of the cross.
1: Yeah. Um, you know we we don't have a whole lot of time left. I just. Um, the, you know, you've written so much about John Paul II. Is there, is there any little vignette? Is there any little story about him that hasn't been published that you could share with us? That you're in your experience with him. So you want breaking news in Duluth today? Yes, that? breaking news in Duluth. We we want to be we want to put on the map here in Duluth.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, I don't think there is. I mean, I, <laughs> I just last night after uh, at the end of the day, I was just looking through. Lessons and hope again, and reminding myself of various situations. And I, uh, no, I think I, I have told all the stories uh, that uh, that I have, and I, I was happy to do that because that's what I discovered people wanted. Years after his death, they wanted stories that brought him alive again. Yeah. So, while Lessons and Hope is about the two of us, it's it's basically about him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope it helps people get to know him in a much more personal way.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a uh, you know every time I see video of him, it still inspires me. I mean, it's and it's not this cult of personality thing. A lot of people think that there's there's something about his priesthood and his ministry that makes me want to be a better priest and so i thank you george for you know bringing him to life to the world in your biographies and i definitely want you back up in duluth you know i'm in a new parish and so uh you were in duluth in my last parish and i'm going to arrange getting you back here at some point too after this whole COVID thing is done
0: i'll look forward to that and cindy nice to meet you by uh
1: radio here
2: very nice to meet you i can't wait to meet you in person sometime
1: okay god bless Thank Take you for your. Thank you for your time. All right, well, um, uh, after uh, our break, we're going to have a conversation with a Catholic doctor who has been dealing with the coronavirus. I'm sure we've talked a lot about coronavirus all over the world and all throughout daily life, but this will give you a very unique opportunity to, to hear from somebody who's dealt with it firsthand and looking at it from the Catholic faith. All this right after the break.